The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I just spent the afternoon under your dappled shade, picking ripe mulberries from the grass. No need to pick from the branches, as the blue jays and cardinals were shaking your upper branches enough to rain the ripest berries at my feet. Nothing makes me feel more like me than picking and eating fruit. But there is another emotion you tap, Mulberry. You could say deja vu, as I have spent many blissful days in your presence. But this is guttural. A recipe for my own genetic history, written in the wind toned by your jagged leaves, your freckled shade, and the inescapable purple marks you press upon my feet, hands, lips, Because of this feeling of knowing you, I've spent some time obsessed with learning your history. You originate from the forests along the south coast of the Caspian Sea. The Chinese quickly discovered you fed the silkworm and a Chinese princess smuggled moth larvae and tree seeds in her headdress around the third millennium BC, keeping your symbiotic relationship secret for another thousand years. The Romans worshipped your fruit, the mulberry tree being the symbol for the goddess Athena and, unknowingly, your silk. As Pliony did not know how silk was made, but adored it as a fabric that did not hide, but showed the body naked. Europeans planted you far and wide as you adapt to many climates, growing fast and prolific. The fork was supposedly invented to eat you, so as not to stain the hands. And the song, Here We Go Around the Mulberry Bush, a song sung by the female prisoners of England's Wakefield Prison, only allowed to exercise at night in the light of the moon. They held hands so as not to lose each other while they circled the mulberry and dance. You are the last tree to flower and the first to fruit, both holding on and letting go almost simultaneously like a secret tattooed upon the hand. I love you as the answer to a question I don't know to ask yet. I'm Jessamine Starr. You're listening to Fruit Love Letters. Food, for me, is a way to express love. I'm a chef in Atlanta, and I fold my feelings into the meals I cook for my family, my friends, even strangers. It can be hard for me to say, I love you, but you will know it when I serve you a buckwheat crepe stuffed with sauteed wild mustard greens. But if I peel you an apple, slice you a persimmon, pick you a mulberry with my stained fingers, then we'll both know it's really serious. Fruit, of course, have long been considered symbols of love, 
even aphrodisiacs. On this show, I'm exploring our love of fruit and what it says about us, people. On this episode, the mulberry. There's a mulberry tree a few blocks from my house in Atlanta, Georgia. It's tall, and every spring it puts out pretty white blooms that turn into elongated berries. There are other mulberry trees in my neighborhood too, lots of them. So many that the sidewalk between them is stained purple from their fruit. And as I've walked the dyed cement year after year, I've been wondering, why is it we have so many mulberry trees around here? As I've searched for answers, I've discovered I wasn't the only one obsessing over the ubiquitous mulberry, and that Atlanta is not the only place it's ubiquitous. I've been very interested in urban trees and urban nature for a long time. And when I was looking for a walk, I came across a very old tree, and it happened to be a mulberry tree in Sayscourt Park in Deptford in southeast London. And I was very surprised. It's in the middle of a park. I was surprised to know why it was there. So I did some research and I found out that it was in the uh, grounds of a mansion house that belonged to a diarist of the 17th century called John Evelyn. And this house had been demolished a hundred years ago, but somehow the mulberry tree had been kept and had been looked after. And that got me interested. This is Peter Coles. I'm a researcher and teaching fellow at Goldsmiths, University of London, and I'm a freelance photographer and uh, writer. A few years ago in 2016, I co-founded a project called Morris Londinium to document, record, and preserve London's mulberry heritage. Morris Londinium, a project to document mulberry trees in London, may have started with that one old mulberry. But Peter quickly discovered it wasn't particularly unique. As I sort of researched a little bit more, I found there were other trees that were quite similar to this, other mulberry trees that had belonged to houses that had been demolished in the big developments of the 19th century when London expanded. Big mansion houses with big gardens were demolished and divided up into plots that were turned into the houses that we see today. So there turned out to be a lot of mulberry trees that belonged to places that were no longer there. And that struck me as being an interesting story to tell. And the project has a map on it. The website for the project has a map where anyone, the general public, can send in the details of a mulberry tree they know of. It might be one they planted themselves in their own garden, you know, last year, but it could be a really old one. And we record these, we enter them onto the map, I do some research, if they haven't already done it, um, find out where the mulberry may have come from, why it may be there, and try and trace the story. And we have hundreds of these now. We started off with about 40 that were already known, and now we have like a 1,000 or something, and it's gone beyond London. Okay, so there are lots of mulberries in London too. But why? That's the question I wanted answered. And Peter says, before we get there, it's important to understand the different kinds of mulberries that exist. There are basically three main kinds of mulberry tree, and they're sort of sort of named after the color of their berries, but not really, I suppose. So there's the black mulberry, which is what 99% of all mulberry trees in Britain are black mulberry trees, and these are the ones that are grown for their fruit. 
and the shade. And they make really lovely landscape trees because they look old when they're not so old. They lean over and get all knobbly and gnarled. So they're great looking trees. They look like giant bonsais in a funny sort of way, if that's not a silly thing to say. The black mulberry comes from around the Caspian Sea, from what used to be Persia. And then there's the red mulberry. That really doesn't like to go anywhere outside the eastern states of the United States and North America generally, so Canada also. And it's become, for reasons that we could go into, it's become an endangered species, the red mulberry. We'll get into those reasons later. The third kind of mulberry is a white mulberry. The white mulberry is Eastern Asia, so China, Japan, Korea, and to some extent Southeast Asia, and parts of the Himalayas. And that's been cultivated for thousands of years for its leaves, whereas the black mulberry has been grown for its fruit. Now, why is it cultivated for its leaves? Well, it's cultivated because it's the only food of the silkworm. And the silkworm, as everybody knows, when it's turning into a moth, makes a little cocoon, spins a cocoon around itself. And this cocoon actually has 900 meters, believe it or not, of thread, which you can unravel and spin it together with other threads and make silk fiber, which can be dyed and then woven into the beautiful silk textiles that everyone's wanted for thousands of years. You may have heard of the Silk Road, yes? The whole thing started in China, northern western China, about 2700 BC or something, when the pyramids were being built and so on. And there were still hairy mammoths walking around in parts of the Arctic Ocean in the islands. So a long time ago, they discovered that silkworms produced cocoons which you could unravel. The story is that a cocoon dropped into a princess's tea and unwound. That's the myth anyway. She unwound it and realized it was a long, long thread. And as they were already making things using cotton and so on, they knew about thread and they knew about textiles and knew how to weave things. So they made some cloth out of this and they realized it had shimmering properties, strength and flexibility and so on, lightweight, that made it incredibly desirable. As she was a princess, this was something that the royal courts and so on took on very quickly. And gradually, over a few thousand years, a couple of thousand years, the Chinese developed this into a very fine art. So they cultivated mulberry trees, and they knew exactly what to do with the silkworms, how to harvest them, how to degum the silk and wind them off, and how to dye the thread and weave it. And it was so good, this silk, that it fetched high prices everywhere. And that's how the Silk Road started. The silk became a commodity, traded for other goods all across Asia and Europe. It was probably only about 600 AD that anyone really got to know how silk was made. It was really in 1200 AD, so 1200 years later, that it started to get into Italy, the secret of how silk was actually made. People were just buying it before and trading it. But once they knew how it was made, how you raised silkworms, they planted mulberries and they started doing it. So it happened in Spain, happened in Sicily, happened in all over Italy, and then it spread into France, and then from France eventually it came up into the UK. That was in the early 17th century, when King James I decided he wanted to try to start a silk industry in Britain. Because a lot of money was being spent importing silk from France and Italy and Spain, at the time, not really from China so much at that particular time, they'd all developed amazing silk industries. And James 
the first wanted a bit of the action. He wanted to copy the French king, Henry IV, to start one here. But to have a silk industry where you produce your own thread, you need mulberry trees. We didn't have any, not to speak of anyway, like one or two. So he ordered the importation of tens of thousands of mulberry trees from France, probably Languedoc in the south of France. That seems to be where they came from. And asked all the landed gentry who had the space to do this, to plant them, to plant like maybe 10,000 each or something, and to learn how to raise silkworms and harvest silk and produce silk and have a wonderful, galloping, fantastic English, at the time, silk industry. That project failed. It failed for a couple of reasons. The bad weather, on the one hand. Britain, like most of Northern Europe and actually the Northern Hemisphere, was going through a little ice age at the time. We're talking about the 1600s. And this went on for a couple of hundred years. The winters were very cold and the springs were very late. And when you try to raise silkworms, they arrive as little pinhead-sized black eggs and then they hatch. And when they hatch, they expect to find food because they're usually laid on mulberry leaves. If they don't find young mulberry leaves, they die. So you have to make sure your mulberry leaves are going to come out on the tree roughly at the same time that your silkworms are hatching. And the silkworms decide to hatch sort of when they want to. In France, women used to keep them in little pouches next to their bosoms under their blouse to keep them warm so they could sort of control the hatching time to fit with the mulberries. So you can adjust it a little bit. Anyway, nobody knew how to do this in this country. Uh, nobody had a clue. They had never seen silkworms before. They didn't know how to raise them. Although there were books were made and guides were translated from French by James I, people around him, it just didn't catch on. Also, it takes a while for mulberry trees to grow because you're stripping the leaves off it. So you've got a sapling, you strip the leaves off it. It's not going to last very long, especially not a black mulberry. It turns out that with white mulberries, you can actually do this. They grow back very quickly, and in some places where the temperature is warmer, you can actually even get two harvests a year. But the black mulberries that were most of the ones that were planted here, you can't strip them of their leaves and expect them to survive. And it was just taking too long. Nobody knew how to do it. It was all going wrong. The silkworms were dying. So basically everyone gave up. But what they did have were thousands of mulberry trees planted around the country. So people, mainly people with money, abandoned the silk idea, but they were like, oh, mulberries are delicious. There seemed to be a bit of a fashion among this aristocratic elite. Have you got a mulberry tree? Because if you like the fruit, you can't buy it. It's impossible to buy mulberry fruit. And if you want it fresh, you can't go to a market. It doesn't keep. It just falls apart, as anyone who's seen one or handled one knows. Shakespeare wrote about it, about the fragility of the mulberry. So the only way, if you want to have black mulberries, you have to have a tree. And you have to have a fairly mature tree that will produce the fruit. So basically, anyone who had a mulberry tree because they inherited the mansion or something was going to keep it because the fruit's lovely and you can serve it in sorbets and all kinds of things and impress all your aristocratic friends. Because if they haven't got a mulberry tree, they can't do the same. So you can show off. So people kept them. And the trees just kept spreading and spreading. And then, I guess, some birds may have taken seeds and they dropped into gardens. That doesn't happen that often. But this sort of fashion spread and nurseries started to keep the trees. You could buy them. They were unusual exotic trees. People wanted to have one. They liked the fruit and so on. And so they ended up being planted in the gardens of people who had a bit of money. And as I mentioned earlier on, those gardens eventually in the 19th century mostly, were divided up 
and the houses demolished and turned into Victorian houses. So many of the trees that we've recorded have been recorded by people, they've been sent in, and they say, I've got this really old mulberry in my garden. I think James I planted it or something. And so I then look up on Ordnance Survey maps and go through the archives and history and think, oh, that's interesting. There used to be a farm there, or there was a monastery there, or that used to be a psychiatric hospital or something. I don't know, whatever. So just by tracking that one mulberry tree, you find out this wealth of history about the land and maybe why it was planted or who planted it. Seems like that could be very exciting. Yeah, it did. Can you give a couple of examples of trees that stand out to you? When King James had planted his mulberry trees for silk, they were next to houses that were also built around the same sort of time in the 1600s, early 1600s. So nearly all the, what they call Jacobean, in other words, James I houses, mansions around the country, nearly all of them have mulberries in their gardens. And for me, the trees are wonderful. They're amazing. They're sort of often they've fallen over, but they're still growing. They still produce fruit. But there's no mystery there. We know why they're there. The trees always stayed in the same place. The grounds are huge. There's a beautiful house next to it that you can visit. It's been taken over by English Heritage or the National Trust or one of these organizations. So they're lovely trees and they're in fantastic surroundings, but there's no mystery. What I'm interested in are the trees that you find an old tree on a street corner. And these are the kind of more humble ones. Okay, yeah. Tell me about the more humble ones. I can think of two in southeast London, in Lewisham, which is near to where Goldsmiths College is. And one of them is on a street corner in a housing development that was put up in 2011, and the tree is about 150 years old. And it's on a pavement right next to a block of flats, an apartment building. And when I looked into its history, I realised this 2011 development had been built on the site of a 1960s housing development. Okay, So in the 1960s, a whole load of Victorian houses were knocked down, new houses were put up, These lasted about 40 years and they too were knocked down and the new ones were put up. And this tree has stood in the same place with its roots in exactly the same piece of earth since Victorian times. So that's the most resilient tree. And when I looked into it, I found through looking at old maps that it had been planted in the playground of a school, of a junior school, boys school, that has long, long gone. I love that. So that for me is one of the most resilient trees, if you like, or resistant trees in London. Not far from there, there's a house, an old house, that's been used as a psychiatric unit for adolescents from the National Health Service. And I was alerted by the nurse who runs it. They had an old tree in their garden. I went, eventually got to see it without expecting it. And she took me through the back of this building, this run-down building, I must say. And in the back was a garden, and there was this absolutely massive mulberry tree, black mulberry tree. I mean, absolutely huge. 400 years old, probably 300 years old. Anyway, so that was a real surprise because nobody knew it was there. It was completely hidden from the public. A bit of the garden was used as a car park. And that tree, when I did research into it, it turns out that the house was not some run-down Victorian house, which was I thought it was. It actually went back to the 1600s or early 1700s and had been a vicarage. It belonged to the vicar of the church, the pastor, priest of the church. Just amazing that they're so resilient. Yeah, they have this ability to grow if they're cut back, to reshoot and grow up again. 
And they're called phoenix trees, really. So in a way, they are eternal, I suppose you could say. Kind of the same genetic material, if the tree rots, as long as parts of it are healthy, will put down new roots and new trees will grow up from the old rotted stump of the first one. And I mentioned some very old trees at Cyan House earlier on. And the orchard there, these are probably the oldest trees in the country. Some of them don't even look like trees. They look like a little garden with several trees in. Whereas, in fact, that little garden with several trees is the rotted stump of a very, very old tree. And all the little trunks are the shoots. They're all genetically identical that have sprouted up from it. And they, too, will fall over and produce new ones and so on and so on. And it can be a never-ending cycle of the same tree. It could be a never-ending cycle with the same tree. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right. So now I understand the omnipresence of mulberries in Britain. But what does that have to do with a mulberry down the street from me? Well, it turns out, everything. What happened when James's first experiment failed here, it was at the time that he had founded the colonies in Virginia and Georgia, Jamestown, all that kind of thing, and they were growing tobacco. And he didn't like tobacco, didn't like people smoking, and he wanted to stop that. And he wanted them to plant mulberry trees and to start the silk industry where the climate was much better. And there was a labor force and the will, and it was all kind of everything was expanding. The economy needed to grow. So James I, after failing to make the silk industry flourish in Britain, tries again here in America. He basically had imported into Virginia at the time and later into Georgia hundreds and thousands of mulberry trees that were then planted and a very successful silk industry grew up in the U.S., especially in the 19th century. I mean, it was very well known, especially in Georgia, where there are museums and things to this now. It turned out in the end, you know, with slavery, slave labor and so on, that Growing mulberry trees for silk was very labor-intensive and it was very complex and cotton turned up and that turned out to be a much better deal. So the fashion for growing mulberry trees for silk just dwindled, really. And there were other reasons as well. But once the trees were here, they didn't just stop growing once people moved on from silk. Quite the opposite, actually. Particularly the white mulberry that was brought over to make silk. White mulberries are very, very profligate. They will sort of mate with any other mulberry that's going, basically, apart from the black mulberry. And what they started to do was to hybridize with the native red mulberry in the US, to the point that the red mulberry, the native red mulberry, has become an endangered species right across Canada and North America. The native mulberry has become rare on its own turf because of these imported trees. And these brought-in mulberries, they grow very easily. They propagate very easily. Not many people know this. But when the pollen is released, it comes out as like a puff of pollen. And the speed at which it's released is the fastest recorded motion of any biological motion. It's half the speed of sound. So anyway, it can go a long way. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that is amazing. (laughs) It is pretty amazing, yeah. So they kind of breed very easily, if you like. They propagate very easily and they've become invasive. They have become a weed. You chop them down and they just grow up again. The black mulberry isn't like that. It's much more sedate. It's more of a kind of reflective, sort of solitary sort of character, you know. It has both male and female on the same tree. doesn't really need anybody else. 
and it chugs along nicely. It'll produce the fruit, even if the seed's not fertile, whereas the white mulberry wants to colonize, and it's colonized the whole world through people bringing them there. It hasn't done it on its own. But that's the silk industry and the greed, I suppose, really, for the economic benefits has meant that the white mulberry was planted everywhere, from North Africa and everywhere, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere. Here in the U.S., the mulberry is often seen as a weed, as a bother, even though it was us, people, that are responsible for its widespread presence and accompanying berry stains. But there's one farmer that's trying to change that perception. Weston Lombard owns Solid Ground Farms in southeastern Ohio. I run a sort of diversified homestead and small farm that we're using primarily as an education center. So I'm the co-founder of Solid Ground School, which is this nature-based elementary school. We also run a, a summer camp program called Rising Appalachian Warriors. So we do a lot of agricultural education and ecology and a little bit of entrepreneurship and that sort of thing. Weston is interested in growing food without chemicals, particularly fruit without chemicals. When we bought the farm, there were some scattered trees around the property, an old apple, and I didn't know a lot about horticulture or agriculture, really. I started reading permaculture books and agroecology and just experimenting. We planted an apple tree with a bunch of heirloom Ohio apples. And year after year, I just I kept planting more and more stuff. And I sort of started with the traditional peaches and plums and apples and pears. We're in a super humid area, so they all get all these, you know, mildew and fire blight. And there's just endless troubles, especially, you know, trying to grow chemical-free. However, I noticed that there was this one old mulberry tree on the farm that every year produced delicious berries, and the kids at the camp would hang out under it and pick for, you know, two weeks straight. And I was doing all this work managing my other trees, and this was, like, my best producer. So I started to look into mulberry a little bit and did start to remember, you know, that, oh, yeah, every summer we used to walk around town and we'd find the mulberry trees, and... It seemed like copious fruit production with little effort. So I, I thought I was on to some like amazing high yield, low input crop. So he started looking for different cultivars of mulberries to plant on the farm to test them for hardiness and cold tolerance and taste. I ordered all the zone six and below mulberries I could find. And I even like traded scion wood with different farmers who had a nice mulberry tree in their backyard. And I probably planted out 50 cultivars and just wanted to see, see what happened from there. A lot of the zone six ones, we had a really cold winter, maybe two years after that. And so thinned out a lot of them pretty fast. And I've just every year kept going and I, I've sort of winnowed it down to like, you know, five mulberry cultivars that I really like. And I'm still really learning the ropes. Mulberry, there's a lot of production abroad, but in the U.S. it's sort of always been seen as a weed tree, except by some small-scale enthusiasts. And actually, I, I've met up with a bunch of people who have been able to point me in positive directions. But as far as like commercial production, I've just been learning by the seat of my pants, experimenting with different options, and, and talking with a lot of other home growers. 
it's been an exciting, exciting path. What surprises me with mulberries is that maybe it is a weed tree, but it is producing delicious fruit. I mean, pretty consistently, the fruit is delicious and people still don't realize that they can eat it. Yeah, it's super tasty. And there's a problem with fruit in general. You know, I've tried to plant apple trees at people's houses and they're like, oh, no, it's too messy. I don't want fruit all over my yard. So I think generally we just have a a strange relationship with fruit and especially sort of something that doesn't come from the grocery store. The average American hasn't really gotten into foraging enough, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A friend and I have joked about opening a table right below a mulberry tree and just picking the mulberries and putting them in a container and then selling them. But, you know, they're just coming from the tree above, (laughs) just saying, all you have to do is put them in a container and then people want them. But it sounds like with your research, you found many uses for mulberries. And I really want to go and explore all those different uses. Like, what are the different ways that we can use mulberry? So it's very diverse. For one, the leaves are really high in protein and different nutrients. Silkworms are a pretty picky animal and like people and pigs, they have one stomach. So they need this like highly digestible, high nutrient content feed. Traditionally in China and India and other places where where silkworms are reared, they've discovered that, you know, you can feed the silkworm and then it's also the leftovers are fed to cattle, even fed to fish. It's just got a really great nutrient profile. And studies have been done now feeding it to goats and sheep. They found that it increases, you know, milk production. It can also be fed to chickens, especially if it's like ground up. I haven't done this, but you can ensile it to preserve it. I dehydrate it. I like to do some tree hay, they call it. So I cut whole branches and I hang them in a shed in the summer, and then I can feed it in the winter to my goats. And they love not only the leaves, but they'll strip the bark off of the trees. Anytime I prune, I throw it over the fence to the livestock and they just, they strip all the bark off. It turns out mulberry is a perfect tree for the kind of farming Weston wants to do. He calls it agroforestry. So whether it's food for livestock or food for people, medicine or timber, anything. So I'm creating this sort of human-centric forest on my farm and then really trying to like live in that forest I've been using this term, an inhabited ecosystem. The idea is by living in the place, I'm becoming familiar with my role in the ecosystem and how I can sort of help the trees to be more productive and work on pest control through like cultural practices. We've done things like controlled burns and, you know, we do a lot of pruning and integrating with livestock to try to control pests. But really just this idea of creating a forest that is going to sustain me through my relationships with it. Mulberries are great because humans on the farm can eat the fruit and actually the leaves. The livestock can eat whatever the humans don't. And the trees are hardy and easy to grow. Weston suggests everyone plant a tree in their yard if they can, which I'm totally for. But also, I wanted to know why why he pushes for even more mulberries when there are so many unwanted trees already growing. 
I mean, just for the pleasure of eating fresh mulberries, they're quite delicious. You can do a lot of things with the berries as well. Anything you could do with, you know, a blackberry or raspberry, you can make pies and jellies and jams, cordials. You can just juice them, make wine. I freeze them and I use them in smoothies all year, eat them fresh. My kids love the frozen berries. My kids just snack on them all year. Or we put them in our oatmeal and that sort of thing. It's really like an amazing free food source and is a nice way to engage with nature and, and just start to think about the rhythms of the season. You come to anticipate mulberry season. I certainly do. I watch my tree bloom. Then I wait for the berries to plump up. Then they fall. And I pick them from both the tree and the ground and eat and eat and eat and eat. By the way, Peter Coles, the one who started Morris Lindinium, shared a tip for those of you who may also love to pick mulberries. I'll tell you something for people who are listening, and that is that if you do pick mulberries and you do get your hands stained or your clothes, well, your clothes are slightly different. It'll wash out of your clothes anyway. But if you pick a leaf or you pick an unripe mulberry from the same tree, one that's still green, it still has juice in it. And if you rub that on your hands, it will dissolve the red. You take a leaf or a green mulberry on the same tree, you crush it and rub it in your hands like a hand gel or something, and it will take away the thing. You need a tissue to wipe it off. So there you go. It won't take it off your clothes so easily, but they'll wash out anyway. I had no idea because, yeah, every time I pick mulberries, I am completely, not only my hands, but somehow part of my face and, you know, <laughs> my shoes. Yeah, you've got the secret now. Thanks, Peter. Thanks also to Weston Lombard for talking with me for this episode. You can subscribe to Fruit Love Letters anywhere you get your podcasts. And we'll be back next week with more Love Letters to Fruit. Fruit Love Letters is part of Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Fruit Love Letters team, producer Irina Zhorov, audio editor Bethany Sands, researcher Carolyn Crosby, and intern Indigo Clarkson. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfeld, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Kodolchek, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, and sound intern Simon Lavender. I'm Jessamine Starr. Thanks for listening to Fruit Love Letters. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, at Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio. And subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com.